the Gospel of John, chapter 1. I have the passage there on the insert for you. Today is the beginning of Advent, the four-week time frame and the tradition of the church where we concentrate on the incarnation of Jesus. Now, if we're preaching through the Bible as we do, there will be many occasions where we are addressing the incarnation of Christ. Um, J.I. Packer wrote in Knowing God, the incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. So Jesus coming as a man is not an obscure doctrine in Scripture. It's throughout. But we do take time every year to concentrate on this doctrine specifically. That's what we do during the Advent Christmas season. In this year, I've chosen four passages for the next four weeks that accent some aspect or some significance to Christ's incarnation, some special significance, slightly different in each of the sermons, each of the texts. Um, There are many ways we apply Scripture when we study it. Sometimes Scripture is just very plain in that do this or do that, of course, in light of who we are as believers in Christ. Sometimes it's a passage that just sets our mind in a higher place about God. That is, it gives us truth about God that we need for the correction of our hunches or our feelings. Um, It elevates our thoughts of Christ, and it helps us worship more genuinely or more deeply, and that translates into a changed life. Um, That's what we have in the passage before us, John 1, one of the grandest passages in all of the Bible addressing the incarnation, and in particular, the glory of God and the incarnation. Mark Jones said more recently, the incarnation is the central fact of history and of the church's confession. I think this is bore out well in the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy when he said, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So for this Advent season, let's together contemplate a little more about the incarnation from different angles. I've chosen four different passages to address this topic. The first passage comes from John's Gospel. Please follow as I read. This is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we have just read one of the the grandest passages of Scripture. Please give us the aid of your Spirit so that our thoughts about you would would be based on your revelation and not our feelings or our hunches. May your word be clear to us as we read and consider. May our worship be deepened and made more genuine as we come to know you better. May our lives be impacted by what we learn today about you and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. If something is deemed glorious, it means that it deserves praise and adoration. To be glorious is to be resplendent. We use the term for too many things, right? Like awesome. We, we apply that to too many things. Uh, it was a glorious catch in the end zone. Glorious really should be reserved for that which is resplendent. To have glory means something or someone is transcendently impressive. Um, The impressiveness of that individual or that event, it transcends the norms. That's what it means to have glory. And everything looks to it because it deserves to be looked upon for its specialness, its resplendence. In describing the glory of God, we have the same phrases applied to Christ. This is how we know what this passage is saying so explicitly is true. That Jesus, himself God, therefore reveals the glory of God. And the buildup to Jesus' coming is very pronounced. The, the passage in Isaiah 40, 700 years before the time of Christ, pictures or forecasts the coming Messiah. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In describing the coming Messiah, the glory of the Lord is used. When Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, the glory of God will be revealed, will be on display. When Christ was born, Luke records the reaction of the angels to Christ's birth. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Regarding the Lord Jesus, who had just come, the writer of Hebrews said, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Deity applied to Christ very specifically and clearly. And the glory of God beheld in God the Son. 
now come to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us. Um, The glory of God in the incarnation, these things come together and revelation comes to us that we had never known before. Reflection on the incarnation of Christ is what we have in the first chapter of John. John is writing a gospel to convince the reader to believe on Christ. Now all the gospels had this as their intention, no doubt, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are endeavoring to lay out a basic chronology of the life of Christ, the facts thereof, and they interweave and give us the full picture. John comes along to try to convince the listener with these facts that Jesus is the Christ and you should believe in him, and in believing in him, you will have life in his name. John wants this. And so when John starts his gospel, he wants to remind them of what they have just witnessed, what they've just seen with their own eyes, the one who had just ascended into heaven. He wants them to grasp what they have received. They have received the glory of God incarnate. John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation was God's glorious intervention so that we might be brought from death to life. This is what it means. So over these weeks, we will focus on different aspects of his incarnation. Today, the glory of God and the incarnation. We'll also look at humility as it relates to the incarnation, generosity as it relates to the incarnation, and true freedom as it relates to the incarnation. But first, the glory of God and the incarnation from John 1. Please turn there as we look at verse 1, and see the glorious eternal word, the Logos. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is using this phrase Logos, the Greek word Logos, the word, describing a person now, the person of Christ. He's applying it to Christ because it answers the mindset of the Greeks and of the Jews and what they were searching for what they were looking for so intensely in life. The meaning of life. In the beginning was the word, the final word you might say, the ultimate reality. And the word was with God. And by the way, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So speaking of Christ, he's applying the term logos or the word. This would have grabbed the mind of the Jewish listener very swiftly In Psalm 90, these kinds of words are only used of God. In Psalm 90, verse 1 and verse 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 3 of our passage, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word, the logos, is the creator. And to the Greek mind, this would answer a question they were always striving for. What is the ultimate answer in life? And to the Jewish mind, this would be the picture of the God of the Old Testament now come to personage. This is now the fulfillment of God's glory with them. The tabernacle that they all remembered their forefathers worshiping at, where it represented the presence of God with them, is realized in the Logos, who dwelt among them. Both the Greek and the Jew would be satisfied by what John portrays here about Christ and the glory of God with them. Christ is a logos first to the Greek mind. 
To the Stoics, the word or the logos in general meant the mind of the divine that they were always striving after finding more about. To the Greek, the word is the rational principle in the universe, the spark of divine man, as some writers put it. To the Greek, observation of the ordering of the universe begins with some sort of universal reason for why things exist. It's that linchpin answer to everything. In John's saying, the word, the logos, is Christ. The Greeks were looking for the answer to life. The Logos was a way of saying, this is the answer to life. Jesus is the ultimate reality, and that is what he is putting forth in these opening verses of John 1. He was not simply a Jewish carpenter, or not only one. He is the eternal creator. He is God, the Word. Now, for the Jewish mindset, there was a basic familiarity with the teaching of the Old Testament about God. Anyone familiar with the Bible knew God as creator. John is setting Christ up as just that, the creator. So the glory of God revealing itself in the person of Christ and his coming. The opening words of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, have a definite connection to these opening verses in John's gospel. So the Jewish mind would have grabbed hold of this. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word, the Logos, Christ, is himself God. There's no question about what the Scripture is teaching here, that Christ is deity. The glory of God has been beheld in the person of Christ. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. This is accented by the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians when he writes, For by him all things were created. He's talking about Christ. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The Word. He is a person. He is Christ. And he has come and we beheld his glory. We had it amongst us. With us. That's what John is saying. And this is where he starts. Jesus is the eternal word. He is God himself now come. He is also the glorious and true light. He is the word, but he sheds light on everything. He gives knowledge to things we could not know otherwise. Where there's darkness, he brings light and exposure. That's who the Logos, who Christ is. Verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. What he had, the ultimate reality, what everyone needs, man needs, the life was the light of man. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So with Christ's coming, the glory of God is revealed. And God himself then sheds light on to the darkness, those areas where we can't have answers otherwise, where we need revelation, where we need a revealing, where we have to have information. We can't know how to interpret it without God shedding light on it. And verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the revelation of God. God himself come. He's the answer to life. We are in the dark about meaning without God reaching to us with his revelation. Revelation means revealing, shedding light on, exposing, illuminating, allowing us to now know. 
So the incarnation is about God's revelation. And God's revelation is of his glory. It stands transcendent. It stands apart from everything that's normal. And it's obviously him. And that's the glory of God come in the person of Christ. In fact, God, by his own design, set up a forerunner so that we would know when the true light came. He set it up in his own mind in eternity past and then revealed it hundreds of years before he actually came. In verse 6, we're introduced to him. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So John the Apostle, this close friend of Jesus, the Apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who was given Mary to take care of at the cross, the youngest of the disciples, he is now writing this account so that we can lay hold of who Christ is and behold the glory of God. And now he's writing about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner forecasted, a man sent from God whose name was John. We know from the book of Isaiah that there would be one who came to make the way plain or clear for the Messiah's coming. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Like a herald going before a parade, letting you know what's coming. So John the Baptist, before Christ comes, makes the way clear. Let's people know that the light is coming. That the glory of God is about to be revealed. In Malachi chapter 3, written about the same time as Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This is what verse 6 refers to, John the Baptist as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. An Old Testament prophet in the New Testament era, his message was clear about Christ. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So John's job was to let people know that he wasn't the light, but that the light was coming. That all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I think this is a great, these two past verses, verse 7 and verse 8, are wonderful reminders, especially to those who are pastors and preachers. We're not prophets. We have the scriptures. So we are, our task is to preach the scriptures and to remind you at the same time that we come as a witness about the light, that you might believe through him. We are not the light, but bear witness to the light. The light is what we need, what you need, and what we ought to give you, what the prophet gave us, and that's what we have, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. This eternal, glorious light, Christ, comes to a place of terrible darkness. In the picture in the first century, couldn't be any darker. You know, there's no electricity. Uh, if you live in a neighborhood like I do where there's no street lights, it's amazing how dark it, you could be in the middle of a suburb and it's so dark outside when the clouds are covering the stars and you can't see anything. This was the experience for most people in the first century, especially in the countryside where the shepherds first heard the announcement of Christ's coming. This, this darkness, yet this light that had come, it's such a vivid picture that describes for us the glory of God being revealed. It's all the, the more glorious and resplendent because of the darkness that's around us. Maybe you know it in your own life, the darkness of your own life and the light that Christ has shed upon it and how you see the areas of your life that were unexposed before. You knew something was there, it wasn't right, and then Christ comes and the glory of God is revealed and you see these areas. And that leads us 
to his glorious salvation. It doesn't just stop with the glory of God coming and just standing there and and showing everyone his glory. This glory extends to us by his saving personal hand. Um, This is what makes the glory of God so real to us, how he affects us personally in saving us. Verse 10, we see the glorious Savior revealed. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. This is a profound verse. Jesus, the creator, as we have just seen, is actually come to the world that he made, and yet the people in the world don't even know him. They don't know he is the creator of it all. To make it worse, the very people that God providentially ordered to bring the Messiah forth from the Jewish people at this time, verse 11, he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. Uh, The glorious Savior coming to do the work that God had given him to do, to bring God's glory to light, was not even known by most people in the world. And the very people that should have known him, that had the revelation about him, that had all the signs and symbols that pointed to him, they didn't know him. But yet something even more glorious about God is revealed. His great grace. Because despite this ignorance around him, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a profound, glorious picture of his saving work. That he would come, and even though on large scale it wasn't originally or initially understood or believed, even rejected, but as he preached and as he taught, God gave sight to the blind and people came to know him. And it says, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be the children of God. Now I have friends that will point out, being that I'm a Calvinist or I believe in God's sovereign decrees and salvation, and I believe that's one of the glorious features of what the Bible reveals. And they'll say, but look at verse 12, you have to receive him. I totally agree, you have to receive him. You must receive him. But look at verse 13. How does that reception happen? Those who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God borns you again. You can't born yourself. Who believes? Who believes on Christ? Those who God gives new birth to. Who God regenerates. It's the glorious picture of the gospel that's all to God's credit. So it's the saving work of God is one of the many ways, but probably the greatest way, in which he brings glory to himself. So Christ's coming is glorious in many levels, and now in a personal way, those who do receive him, or did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born of, not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the central passage, probably, for this topic of the glory of God in the incarnation, comes now in verse 14. Please look there with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, as it says in some versions quite literally. And we have seen his glory. Now, John's writing to an initial audience, we have seen his glory. They had seen his glory. These are eyewitnesses of Christ. The Gospel of John, written pretty early. Most of the recipients would have lived during the time of Christ. If he writes this book in 50, let's even say 60 AD, that's only 
27 years from the time Jesus ascended, very likely the vast majority of the people actually beheld Christ with their eyes, maybe even touched him or were touched by him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We've seen it all, everybody. That's what he's saying to that initial audience. And we have seen him too by the testimony of the word of God. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The eternal word, the one who was with God, who is God, the creator of all things, including flesh, now becomes flesh. He didn't come in the form of a human king initially. He came as a servant who came to give himself as a ransom. In a very general way, the result of Jesus' coming to dwell among us is his revelation of God and his glory and his salvation. He was living and walking as a human being revealed to us, revealing to us things about God that we could have never known and we have on record because of his servants writing them by his spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, at this point, people who had the Old Testament had a lot of revelation about God. They had lots of knowledge. The Old Testament reveals much about God's will and his salvation and his Savior. Um, we learn in shadow form in the Old Testament most of what is taught in the New Testament. But the coming of Jesus served to interpret all those things in the Old Testament now and fulfilled in Christ. Verse 14, we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This statement says to us, God spoke his final word in Christ, his ultimate word in Christ. All the glory that was in part experienced in the Old Testament was now there living among them in the person of Christ. Now I want you to think about this. We beheld him, we witnessed him, we saw him, we, we were able to take in everything about him. Now, what in particular is revealed? We know his salvation is glorious because he purchases it for us. But in watching Christ in his life, what would you say was glorious? I think this is speaking about his moral perfection, um, his resplendent perfection, because they had the law that Moses gave. And there were people who were pretty righteous among them, who were pretty legalistic in the way that they followed it. And they could be looked upon as people who, boy, they were pretty good. They were pretty moral. But they all knew that they were not perfect at all. And everyone had a sense of their fallenness and their brokenness. Up against the law, they knew how sinful they were in their hearts. They knew the truth of it. But then to watch Christ at every moment, to spy him at every second if you had opportunity, and never see him fall, never see him sin, to see him walk in a way that was perfect, is to behold the glorious righteousness of God right in their midst. This is the one so at the same time, we give glory to God for his salvation as we see him walking among us, that first audience would be thinking. At the same time, we know he saved us. We know he's worthy of that salvation because we beheld him and he never sinned. He is the worthy sacrifice and he sacrificed. That's glorious. That's transcendent. That's not the norm. That's something only God does. And that's the glory of God in the incarnation. The only son from the father. Some of your versions will say the only begotten of the father. Here John's not speaking of God's only born or naturally generated son. We know that by the context and by the whole of scripture. It's talking more about God's unique son, the one and the only. Uh, in the economy of the Trinity, Jesus was the one of the Godhead who could go forth and do this thing for mankind. In this way, God sent forth his only son, his unique son in this sense. 
Further, we have all beheld, as it's described, that he is full of grace and truth. The words mercy and truth or loving kindness and truth are constantly used by the psalm writers to describe no one else but God. In their authentic form, grace and truth can really only be applied uniquely to God. Now, I know on occasion we'll call human beings gracious or grace-filled, but truly only God deserves to be called this in the sense the Bible describes grace. Sometimes we'll refer to a person as being honest or truthful. This may be a trait which describes an upright person most of the time, but strictly speaking, God is truth. Of only Christ, it can be said that he is full of truth. So John takes terms which only accurately describe God and applies them to Christ. Christ is full of grace and truth. He is the fountain of grace, abundant grace for sure. Christ manifests grace and truth. Grace, the way the Bible describes it, is so uniquely tied to God. Grace is showing favor to those who actually deserve punishment. Um, It's not just showing favor to people who are in need, but people who deserve the opposite of kindness. It's showing them this kindness, and justly so, because someone else takes their punishment. That's the unique divine grace described in the scriptures. And this is the grace that Jesus manifests in his incarnation. Truth. It's revealed in every word which proceeds from Jesus' mouth. His discourses shed light on this dark world. His word shines for a light, as a light for the world to see. His teaching is used by the Spirit to regenerate spiritually dead people. His teaching sets captives free and confronts false claims of the many wolves that would come in sheep's clothing. Much could be said about Christ taking on flesh in order to save us from our sins. But one thing which must always be remembered is concerning God's profound care for the human condition. Yes, God is sovereign and all-powerful. He is the eternal word. But this does not mean he's indifferent to our plight, to our misery, to our condition. In fact, the sovereign one came to earth as a man, not just to stop by, to make a pronouncement, but to dwell among us. Do you think that Christ is somehow irrelevant irrelevant or unable to sympathize with your particular trials or concerns, the incarnation speaks loudly and boldly against that notion. William Barclay said, the incarnation quiets such such assertions. Jesus' coming is the final unanswerable proof that God cares. Verse 15 in our passage, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John, again, emphasizing in the the original audience, appreciating this bold witness from John. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We've already considered what grace means. And I want to give you an illustration that I know is weak from, it just, it can't fully help us appreciate, but I want to try. I had an uncle who would basically give candy to me anytime I wanted, regardless of whether my parents said I could have it or my aunt said I could have it. It could be before dinner, after dinner, whenever I wanted to have it. And that was my gracious uncle. I would go to his recliner. He'd have this crystal 
kind of a crystal-like candy bowl that was filled with candy, and I can go there anytime, and he'd never turn me away. He'd always give me some candy. And it always seemed to be full. He knew when we were coming over, and it was ready for us. And he was just gracious like this. He gave us this candy. Even though there were rules against it, I still could get it, and I knew I could get it, and it was great. One time, though, we visited unannounced, which was unusual. We didn't do that. They lived in a different part of town, so it would be out of our way. For some reason, we were in that part of town, and we stopped in. And he was there at the recliner, but there was no candy in the bowl. And I went immediately looking for the candy. And you could see the look on his face, and he let me down that he didn't have it for me to give. He wanted to give it, but he just didn't have it. It just wasn't there to give. And there was a feeling I had like, why isn't it there? That is never the way God is when we come for more grace. He's never out of that grace. He always has that grace. He has more grace. Where grace first came from, he's got more of it to give. You're not saved once from your sins, and then you have to kind of from there make your way. You're still going to sin. You're thinking right now about a sin you're going to commit, and God's grace is still there for you. That's what is meant. For the law was given through Moses. For from his fullness, in verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. This is the final statement in this prologue in John's gospel. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, talking now about Christ again, he has made him known. So the coming of Christ is this fulfillment of all that was forecasted so that we lay hold of the glory of God in the incarnation. J.C. Ryle, when he was speaking on this passage, wrote or said this, and it was written down, and I want to apply it here. I cannot close these notes on the opening verses of St. John's Gospel without expressing my deep sense of the utter inability of any human commentator to enter fully into the vast sublime truths which the passage contains. I have labored to throw a little light on the passage and have not hesitated to exceed the average length of these notes on account of the immense importance of this part of Scripture. But after saying all that, I have said, I feel as if I have only faintly touched the surface of the passage. There is something here which nothing but the light of eternity will ever fully reveal. That's what we have before us in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. Like Mark Jones said, and I repeat, the incarnation is the central fact of history and of the church's confession. Our own confession in our tradition does a great job trying to capture the totality of what the scripture says about God's glorious incarnation. And I'll close with these words. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, be conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? 
The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit, above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and a surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. The incarnation was God's glorious intervention so that we might be brought from death to life. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, as we begin a fresh season of reflection on the gift of your Son, please grant us a spirit of humble awe as we consider how your glory was revealed in the coming of Christ as a man. Stop us in our tracks so that we may pause and give you praise. Lord Jesus, with the inspired words of Paul to Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. You were manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. All praise be unto you, the glorious one and our Savior. Amen.